You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. If you will, turn your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. Before we dive in, according to Global Christian Relief, a ministry devoted to serving persecuted Christians worldwide, the the Chinese government treats all religion, especially Christianity, as a security threat. In our digital age, the Communist Party in China has blocked Bible apps and many Christian websites from being accessed in China. Christian schools and programs for minors are banned in China. Churches are hard to find in China because churches are informal and decentralized because of the persecution that is there. You're not going to see First Baptist Church of Beijing. That simply, you won't see a sign or a building. Churches meet in homes, and even these house churches have had to break up and meet in smaller groups to evade the watchful eye of the government. Likewise, Christians in India suffer persecution from the Hindu nationalist government. Christians continue to be persecuted by Muslims in Africa. Now it's easy to see persecution is out there. It certainly does happen in severe ways, but persecution also happens here. Jack Phillips was a a baker who refused to make a cake for a homosexual wedding. Since he runs his business as a Christian, Lawsuits emerged and he was taken to court, and although he prevailed in the Supreme Court, persecution has continued for over a decade as he has been harassed and bombarded with requests to make the most profane cakes at his bakery. Baronelle Stutzman was a Christian florist who was forced to close her business, forced into retirement, because she also refused to compromise her faith convictions and participate in the celebration of what the Bible calls sin. Coach Joe Kennedy was a former high school football coach who was fired for praying at midfield after games. Now, we may have a less offensive word to this, and we may call that discrimination here in America, but make no doubt that that is persecution. It's specifically targeted at Christians. Even within recent news... Several pro-life Christians possibly face 11 years of prison for praying, singing hymns, and pleading women to not end the life of their unborn children at an abortion clinic. In this world where faithfulness to Jesus often results in persecution, 1 Peter 3, 13-18 offers us some counsel and encouragement to those who suffer persecution. Let me read those verses together and then we will dive in who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled but sanctify christ as lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you Yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 
For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. As we have noted in previous sermons, Peter is writing to believers who are suffering persecution. He, he calls them elect exiles at the beginning of the book. We see that uh, believers are suffering unjustly from Emperor Nero and the government in chapters, chapter 2. We see believing wives suffering persecution from unbelieving husbands in chapter 3. They are suffering persecution. And no doubt they may wonder, how long do we have to endure this? This is difficult. And so Peter is written to give them encouragement. And I think we have some of that encouragement in our text today. And the first thing I want us to see is that, number one, when you suffer for the gospel, do not fear those who persecute you. When you suffer for the gospel, do not fear those who persecute you. Perhaps that's easier said than done, but let's look in this text here. We have this question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, when I first hear this question, thinking, well, Peter, quite a few folks, actually. Well, there's Emperor Nero. He's killing Christians. He's persecuting Christians. So, so he certainly can harm these believers and is. There's all of his governors. When we read about unreasonable masters, certainly they can cause harm to Christians. There's the unbelieving husbands towards believing spouses. Certainly that may cause persecution. Who, who, who is it that will harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Well, quite a few folks. That's not the point. What, 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 what is Peter saying here? He's, he's also, he is showing that we will suffer physical persecution. Look at the next verse. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. There will be physical persecution. You possibly becoming a Christian and following Christ, you very well may suffer physical harm. So what does he mean by who is there to harm you? I believe this question is similar to what is, what is asked in Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, man can do a whole lot to us, even leading up to our own death and killing us. What is being... What's the motive behind this question? What can man do to me? Who is there to harm you? This is not speaking of our physical harm. Uh, verse 13 refers to the ultimate harm of the soul. M Matthew 10, 28 gets at this. Do not fear those who kill the body only, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Don't fear the one who can just kill the body. Well, what can they do to you? They may take your physical life, but they cannot take away your faith in Christ. They cannot take away your soul. 
Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, there might be a lot of people against us, but ultimately, what can they do to our souls? They can do absolutely nothing to our souls. So when we hear verse 13, who is there to harm you spiritually, to harm your soul, if you prove zealous for what is good? Nobody can. There's nothing your persecutors can do to you to rob you of your soul if it is in Christ. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. The word blessed means happy. Now, I don't really consider suffering as something that makes me very happy. And perhaps you don't either. We read that. If, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are happy. Now, man, nothing about physical harm for my faith sounds very enjoyable. How are we happy when this happens? The happiness is not in the suffering if, if, if you just enjoy suffering like that, something might be wrong with you. The happiness is not in the suffering. The happiness is in the result. Again, going back to chapter 1, when it says that you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. When we suffer for the gospel, when we suffer for righteousness, Peter's letter, the the word of God, promises us this inheritance that awaits us. Our happiness is in the results of the suffering. One commentator writes this, The Christian is the man to whom God and Jesus are the supremacies in his life. His relationship with God in Christ is life's greatest value. It is the most precious thing for him. If the most precious thing for him is his relationship to God, nothing can take that from him. So then, even in suffering, he is still blessed. A year ago... From next week, I preached 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in that, Paul is encouraging Timothy to to, to be faithful to the preaching of the word. And he says in chapter 3 before, he says, Difficult times are coming when, when people will be revilers, lovers of self. They will persecute you. And Timothy, you are to preach the word in a context in which people will not endure sound doctrine. It's quite interesting that that Paul is telling Timothy to keep preaching even in the context when people don't want to listen to his preaching. Sounds like a fun ministry. Well, why is he to endure? What, What is the motivation to enduring that kind of hard ministry when he is being persecuted for preaching the gospel? Because Paul has said that there is laid up for for him and all who love his appearing this crown of life. There is a reward for those who endure persecution. 
And so as a result of knowing this, that we can endure persecution, we are blessed because of this heavenly reward that awaits us. It tells us, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Literally, the, the, the word for imitation, intimidation is literally, it says, do not fear their fear. Uh, there will be people that seek to intimidate us, that, that seek to scare believers from faithfulness. Do, do not respond to their scare tactics, but keep calm and carry on. Keep pressing forward. Do not fear them because, what, again, what can they do? What can they do to you? What, what spiritual harm can they do to you? They can do nothing. You may be, you may lose friends for following Christ. You may be cast aside from your family for following Christ. You may be in prison for following Christ. And you may die for following Christ. They may take your physical life. It may affect your health. But it can't take your soul. It can't do anything. So we don't fear them. We suffer for the gospel. Do not fear those who persecute you. But number two, when you suffer for the gospel, fear the one who protects you. Do not fear those who persecute you. But number two, when you suffer for the gospel... Fear the one who protects you. you know, we all fear something. Uh, I've said before, and it, it makes uh, I make no apologies for this, I am very much afraid of heights. When I went to the Grand Canyon, it was really nice to look at it, but I want to look at it from about a few feet back. It was a little intimidating. We all fear something. We either fear those who persecute us or we will fear God. Again, Matthew 28, do not fear those who kill the, the body only, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. When we look at our text today, we, and it tells us do not fear their intimidation, what are we to do instead? It says in verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I like how the ESV says this a little bit better. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now this language comes from Isaiah chapter 8. So I'm going to ask that you turn there briefly uh, to Isaiah in the Old Testament in chapter 8. Now, if you'll remember, at Christmas time, we preached through the prophecies of Isaiah, and we hit Isaiah 7, where you get this sign that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That was a sign for Ahaz. Ahaz is terrified. He's got uh, enemies coming from both sides. He is very much afraid. And then Isaiah chapter 8 Beginning in verse 11, it says, For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, 
and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regards to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. So see that in comparison to this first Peter. Honor Christ as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. And here in Isaiah it says, I missed my spot here. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. You see, Peter is equating Jesus with the Lord of hosts. Notice what it says here. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. Fear God. Don't fear what the people fear or be in dread of that. Look, I'm taking care of that, but fear the Lord. Fear the Lord of hosts. He should be your fear. But I want us to see something else here. As I mentioned, fear the one who protects you. Verse 14 in Isaiah chapter 8, it says, Then he shall become a sanctuary to both the houses of Israel. This word sanctuary literally means a place of refuge, a safe place, a place of protection. Setting apart Christ as holy means that we fear him. But not fear in a sense of that he's going to destroy us. Remember, as we talked about before, in Matthew 10, 28, we, we, we fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But we also looked at in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Christ is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. The one who can destroy our souls is the one who guards our souls. The one to whom we must fear is the one who is our sanctuary, the, our refuge and our safe place. Psalm 46, 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. We must fear the one who also protects us. So why can we endure persecution? Why can we endure this suffering? This suffering of physical harm, because God is ultimately the one who protects us. The Lord is at my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. Man, if the Lord's on my side, I'm in good shape. Amen? Set Christ apart as holy. Fear him. Don't fear our persecutors. Fear the one who also protects you. Well, how does that, how does that look like? What, what does the, the life look like of the one who fears God? As we continue on in the text, signify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Look at what it says. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. What I want us to see here is that those who fear God speak up for God. It's just to be prepared or to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. Uh, one writer says, when we consider the prospect of persecution, that it is a real possibility, when we consider the threat of persecution, he says, we must not fear it, but prepare for it. 
be ready to give this defense. Defense is a legal term. It's, it's, it's like you are giving a, a defense in court. The word defense is the word apologia. Yes, it is the word that we get the word apology, but what it's not saying is you need to apologize for being a Christian. That's not what it's saying. It, it is a word that we get our, a word for apologetics, this, this verbal defense, a reasoned statement or a reasoned argument. And as it says here, that, that to be ready to make a defense and to give an account, this word for an account is, is logos or word. Be ready to, to give a, a, a reasoned verbal argument for the hope that is in you. When we see this word defense, it tells us that there is something for which we have to defend. There is something to defend. And what is that? It's this hope that you have in you. Now, this is not a subjective hope. This is not a, you need to defend why you personally hope in Jesus. Well, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me and why I, I really like Jesus. No, this hope is in objective realities. I want to turn to a couple of passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And in verses 14 and 17, we see this, 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 this theme of if Christ has not been raised... It's this passage of if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. We see this mentality. If Christ has not been raised, then verse 19 comes along. And it says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. This hope that we have, giving a defense of the hope that is in you, this hope is in an objective reality in a risen Lord. In, in, in that Christ has indeed risen. Why do I hope in Jesus? Why do I hope in the things? Why do I hope in the gospel? Because Jesus is risen. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Hypothetically speaking, if somebody were able to find the body of Jesus and prove with DNA evidence that this is 100% Jesus of Nazareth, then Christianity would be done. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in something concrete. Now turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians as well, chapter 4. I often read this when I, when I get chances to do funerals. This is one of my favorite texts to preach. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So obviously talking about those who have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no, everybody's there, what does it say? Who have no what? Who have no hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died 
and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What hope do we have? What is the basis of our hope that there will be this future resurrection of believers? Our hope is in that Jesus died and rose again. So this defense that we give is, is a defense of the gospel. To, to give this defense means there is something concrete and objective to which we defend. This is not defense of some subjective feeling in your heart. This is be ready to defend why you believe that Jesus died and rose again. And Jude tells us the false teachers have crept into the church. And then he says, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That there is a body of truth that was delivered. There was a body of truth that was delivered to him that we are to contend for. In 2 Timothy, also, you don't have to turn there necessarily. But in 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, he says, for this reason, I also, I, I, su I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. He then tells Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. So, so Timothy is to retain what he's heard from Paul in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And, and, and Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15 says that I deliver to you that which I also received. So Paul has received this body of truth. He is now telling Timothy to retain this body of truth. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, These things which you have heard from me, these truths that also I received, and now you've heard me, I've taught them to you, Timothy. You've heard me teach them in the presence of many witnesses. Now entrust these things to faithful men, and these faithful men are now to be able to teach others also. That there is this passing on of a particular set of truths within the Christian faith. What we are defending is an objective material. There is a body of truth to be passed down, to be contended for, to be defended. Why must we defend this hope that is in us? Turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16. Peter speaks of the letters of Paul. <clears throat> speaking of Paul's letters, he says, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So these scriptures can be twisted and you see what the result is of twisting the scripture. It is our own destruction. 
And this says in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing this is a possibility that people can take the word of God, twist it for the destruction of your soul, be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. And if we fear God, in this age of suffering and persecution, if we do not defend the hope that is in us, if we do not defend the gospel, if we do not defend the faith once for all that was delivered to the saints, if we do not pass down this truth to coming generations, people will fall away. People will be led to their own destruction. So we must stand firm as those who fear God and give a defense for the hope that is in us. How do we give this defense? How do we defend the truth? When we look at church history, the church has defended the truth through centuries by by convening in church councils, whereby these creeds and confessions that we've been reading have been produced. The, the, the formulation of these documents were to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They would come to these councils, a, 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 some teaching that was contrary to scripture would be brought in. And, and maybe it sounded somewhat scriptural, but they had to take it up. They had to discuss it. They had to, to, to as, as men of God, look in the word of God and say, is this right or is this not? And then they would defend the truth by putting out these teachings the forms of creeds and confessions, and say, this is what the Bible says. They defended the truth, and they worked hard to do that. So this is one way the church has defended the truth in history. They defended their affirmation in the gospel. Another way that we do that is through preaching. Preaching the word. We are def- when I had come before here, you on a Sunday morning, I am not here sharing my thoughts and opinions. I am preaching what the Bible says. I am defending the truths of Scripture. This is God's Word, and this is why it matters. But we also defend the truth through more informal ways. When you're meeting with a brother and sister in Christ over lunch or coffee, and you're talking about the Word, and Maybe they say something that doesn't quite line up, and you say, well, you know, actually, let's look at the Bible. Let's open to this book. Let's open to this. Let's, let's read the scriptures together and see what the Bible says. You are defending the hope that is in you. Anytime we share the gospel with an unbeliever, we are telling them that they are sinners and that Jesus Christ died on, on the cross and rose again to give them new life. We are defending the hope that is in us. We must be ready to give this defense. So my question for you, church, is will you be ready to defend the hope that is in you when persecution comes? You know, it's easy to talk about Christ, and it's easy to defend truth when you're talking with your fellow Bible-believing church members. It's easy for us to say, for example, homosexuality is a sin in a group of people that believe that. It's easy. We're in our own echo chamber. Yeah, amen, yes. 
That's another thing. To say homosexuality is a sin. When you have a family member who brings their mate from an opposite sex over to Thanksgiving dinner. It's easy to be in a conversation with your pastor and say transgenderism is wrong and yeah, you agree. It's another thing when you get an invitation to go to the wedding of someone in your family that's getting married to a transgendered person. How will you respond? Will you defend what you believe? Will you stand up for what is true when it's hard? I hope that we will. There's a couple of ways that we have to defend this hope, though. Look at what the text tells us. We're going to be ready to give this defense, but to do so with gentleness and with reverence. And very easy, do it with gentleness, meekness. Essentially, the Greek for this is don't be a jerk. As you defend the hope that is in you, as you defend the truths of the gospel, you don't have to do it in a way that is being a jerk. You can do it in a way that is kind and compassionate towards others. There is a way to communicate truth in a winsome manner. Uh, Ephesians talks about this is to speak the truth in love. The truth has to be still spoken. Speak the truth in love. Defend this truth. Defend the hope that is in you with gentleness, but also with reverence. Again, this reverence is the word phobos, which means to fear and to fear God. That we defend the truth. We defend the hope that is in us with this hope of the gospel. The truths of God's word. We defend it because we fear God. When we suffer for the gospel... Those who fear God are ready to speak for God, and we give this defense, the faith. Number four, when you suffer for the gospel, live a life of integrity that acquits you. Look at what the text tells us, verse 16. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. This concept of good behavior is all throughout 1 Peter. Peter is all about talking about behavior and conduct. We saw this in chapter 1. Verse 15. Where it says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your behavior. We see also down in chapter 2, verse 12, this concept of keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And also, along with that, we see in verse 15, in, in chapter 2, in verses 15 and 20, it talks about living right, doing what is right. Such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish men. Down in verse 20, that you are to suffer for doing what is right. 
Going on to chapter 3, unbelieving wives are to win their unbelieving husbands by their behavior, by the way that they live. This behavior is is, talked about a lot in Peter's letter here. Now, what is he referring to? This is not just good manners. This is not just being kind and polite. He is talking about distinctly Christian conduct. If we look in chapter 3, again in our text today, this Good behavior says that those who revile your good behavior in Christ, this is distinctly Christian conduct. This is a life of holiness, a life of integrity. We have to live in this way, says because there are people who are slandering you. There are people who are saying negative things about you. They're reviling you. So you're to live in such a way, a way of holiness, a a way of integrity, so that those who are slandering you and reviling you will be put to shame. Now what is it talking about here? This is not saying that they're going to be ashamed. They've said bad things about you. They are not ashamed. These people are already living a holy life. These people are already living a life of integrity, and they are being slandered for it. This being put to shame is... The, the judgment of God that will come upon them in the end. Now, we saw this in, in Psalm 34 last week. We'll briefly turn there again. If I can find it here. Psalm 34. It says... Those, in, in, chapter, in verse 21, those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And, and the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. But we live in such a way, with integrity and with holiness... Because those who slander us, those who revile us, will one day be put to shame. Now the reasoning continues in verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Obviously, you are to be holy, you are to be, live a life of integrity. Suffering for doing what is wrong is just getting what you deserve. If you've done what is wrong, you are just getting what you deserve. But suffering for doing what is right will lead to these revilers and these slanderers to be put to shame. They will be judged and they will be condemned for their actions. But you ought to live a holy life. A life that will acquit you of their charges. The things in which they slander you, the things in which they revile you for, will be proven wrong in the day of judgment. And it is them who will be condemned by the Lord. And lastly, when you suffer for the gospel, hope in the one who suffered for you. It is hard... To give a defense. It is hard to keep a clear conscience. It is hard to keep doing what is right when you're continuously reviled and harmed physically for your faith. 
I can imagine when you're being persecuted, it's, it's hard to want to do the right thing. When we look at the fact that Christ was reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That is not my natural bent. Our natural bent is to retaliate. Of course, we saw last week that that is not what we ought to do. We don't return evil for evil or insult for insult in verse 9, but give a blessing instead. Why? Why are we, why are we able to do this? Why are, why are we able to live this life of non-retaliation but trusting in him? Because we, we hope in him who suffered for us. Verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, and having put to death, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now there's actually a lot in this verse. First thing I want us to see here when we talk about Christ and his death, it says that he died for sins once for all. What does he mean by that? If you will turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, just a few books behind 1 Peter. You've got Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter. So I'm trusting the women to find that pretty quickly. They're going through James. Hebrews chapter 10. So you don't even have to go very far in the book of Hebrews. What does this mean once for all that he died He died for sins once for all. I'm going to look really quick at chapter 10, verse 1. This is a little bit of theology here, but it'll, it'll help us understand what Peter's saying. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, can, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. I want you to see here in Hebrews that the Old Testament sacrifices were never intended to and do not atone for sin. They didn't save anybody's sins in the Old Testament. What does it say here in verse 3? Those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. The point of the sacrifices in the Old Testament wasn't that the blood of bulls and goats to save their sin. In fact, the text here says it's, they can't. The sacrifices in the Old Testament merely served as a reminder of their sin. Same thing with the law. The law can't save us. The law simply reminds us that we are sinners. It is pointing us to something. Let me get to chapter, verse 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Again, they don't save. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I want us to see the blood and bulls and goats don't save. 
So how were those Old Testament saints saved? How were their sins atoned for? Well, who atoned for their sins? Jesus did. Jesus offered a sacrifice once for all time. Those Old Testament saints, it is the blood of Christ that covers them. Those, who are, are, those of us who are here living right now, our sins are atoned for by Christ. Those who will be born that we do not even know yet, when they place their faith in Christ, their sins are atoned for in Jesus. He offered one sacrifice for all time, past, present, and future. Continuing on, it also says he died the just for the unjust. This is so clear that Jesus was sinless. He was the only perfect sacrifice. He was the, he was the just who died for the unjust. And in the cross, he, he takes upon our sin so that we can receive his righteousness. He is our substitute sacrifice. I'm going to skip a phrase here intentionally. We'll get back to it. It says at the end, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, I want to explain this, what this means, and, and I don't think you're going to have any problem with this. What this is not saying is that he died physically and then he rose spiritually. In some disembodied state. No, what it is telling us there is that Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh. Human hands killed him. He, he literally died, but it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that brought him back to life. He was made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives us life as well. Well, why did he do this? Why did he do this? Well, let's skip that part on purpose, because it tells us right here. So that he might bring us to God. He might bring us to God. Now, in one sense, we've already been brought to God. If we've placed our faith in Christ, we have been reconciled with God. But I don't think this is talking about re reconciliation. I think this is talking about when we will one day dwell with Christ, and dwell with the Lord, dwell with God forever. That he died so that he might bring us to God. These believers here are already reconciled to God. They already have a relationship with God. So you'd expect him to say, if he's talking about reconciliation, so that he has brought you to God. That's not what he says, so that he may bring you to God. This is talking about in the end when we live with God in eternity. Revelation 21 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Right now, these believers in 1 Peter, they are experiencing pain. They're experiencing mourning. Their loved ones are dying. Their loved ones are being dragged away to their death. Just crying. There will be a day, he tells them, where this will be no longer. 
Every tear will be wiped away. There will no longer be any death. And that is a day when we will be his people and God himself will be among them. Christ died to bring us to God. Christ died to bring us to this moment in Revelation 21 where God will be among us and there will be no more pain. There will be no more persecution. There will will be no more suffering. There will be no more unjust torture of believers. We will dwell with God. This is to encourage the believers who are suffering. Say, hold on. Stay faithful. Endure. Place your hope fully on Christ because I know it's hard now. I know you're suffering now. I know you're experiencing persecution now. And I'm sure you're wondering how much longer will this last. But hold on and hope in Christ because he died to bring you to God and that day will come. Dear church, I don't think that persecution is going to get any easier. I think that, as Paul told Timothy, that difficult times would come. They certainly did come in his time, and they've come here. When I think of, even just in our bordering state in California, that the Senate passed a bill that if a parent refuses their child's gender reassignment surgery, then the state can take their kids away. Now, that's not in China. That's, that's not in, in India. That's in California. The persecution of Christians is here, and I don't think it's going to let up. But what are we going to do? Well, we can't fear them. We have to fear God. We've got to be ready to defend the gospel. Why do you believe what you believe? Be ready to defend the gospel hope that you have. Contend for the faith. Don't give up. Because Christ has died to bring us to God. And one day we will get there. Do not lose heart. Let's pray.